Are there any questions about the material of last time? Okay, we're ready to start the second chapter of, uh, of Revelation. We start now this letters to the seven churches in the second chapter of, of Revelation. The first is the church of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus, by the way, is the largest excavation site in the world. I've been there a couple of times. I think they've done more excavating since I was last there. Um, it's just massive. There's no way of actually doing a tour of the whole excavation in a day. It's about five or six cities that are sort of they shifted slightly. Even at the time of the New Testament, the city of Ephesus was no longer a, co a coastal city. And yet this, the architecture, when you go there even now, the architecture, you can see where the harbor was, even, in a, even though it's 11 miles away. I think, no, I think it's 14 miles away, somewhere in there. Uh, we, got off the, uh, we got off the ship where we were. Uh, you were with me the second time, weren't you? At Ephesus? Yes. I forget what girl I took the first time. The uh, we got off the bus. We take we took uh, got off the a boat and had to take a bus all the way over. So, so you know, it's sizable, a sizable difference. But that the silt that built up around the coast because the water the river came through the silt that built up simply gradually separated the city from from the from the sea. Mm -hmm. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and you cannot bear those who are evil. For you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and you have found them liars, and you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Okay? Let's just stop there, those first three verses. The church of Ephesus was known in antiquity as possibly the toughest of the churches with respect to the deposit of faith. It was, uh, they really did not like heretics at Ephesus. Okay? Staunch, staunch uh, adherence to the gospel. Um, among the early Christian churches, that of Ephesus was particularly renowned for the strictness of its doctrinal purity. I believe I've copied a text down for you, haven't I? Acts, yes, Acts 19, 8 to 10. Okay. He's talking about Paul. Chapter 19 has, has to do with the founding of the church at Ephesus. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Now he spends three months in the synagogue, but lots of problems, getting lots of resistance from the Jews. Okay. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, 
reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now notice there, he's hired out of hall. That's our first, our first example of the Christians actually either renting a building <laughs> or going someplace where they have a, a formal hall in the school of Tyrannus. One of the manuscripts, by the way, it says he was reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. That's a daily class. It's a daily class. One of the manuscripts actually tells the hours. I don't, I don't, I don't think that manuscript is correct, but at least I don't think it's original. Uh, tells He puts in five hours a day teaching in the school of Tyrannus. Now, there's a very interesting picture of the early Christian church where you're studying every day. You go to a school and you study. Uh, that became kind of common in the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the church of the fathers, where you had school every day, or had a sermon every day, or at least in some places, several days a week. Wednesdays and Fridays, for example, fast days were oftentimes with the church gathered together for what they called a synaxis. Um, I tried to make that point yesterday, but I, I suspect I didn't make it very, very graciously at the bishop's presentation at uh, at St. John, no, it wasn't St. John's, it was the Serbian Cathedral. I tried to make that point, that the idea of, of hearing one sermon a week would have been unknown in the early church. We hear one sermon a week, they're just an unknown thing. Uh, anytime Christians got together, the pastor was expected to preach, which is why you've got shelves and shelves and shelves of the homilies and sermons of St. John Chrysostom, of St. Cyril of Alexandria, of... Uh, even as late as St. Gregory Palamas, you've got Shel Gregory Palamas preached every day you know, in the cathedral of, uh, of Thessaloniki. So Paul went every day and held this, held like a class, I don't know, he says he's reasoning. Okay. Um, so they broke with the, early, with the local synagogue fairly early over the, the business of doctrinal purity. <laughs> Later on in chapter 19, you've got that. We have that one as well. Yeah, you do. Yeah, look at your, your other text, chapter 19, starting at verse 18. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. And the word of the, word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Uh, some years ago, in an article in Touchstone, I, uh, I expressed some of my misgivings about book burning in an article called From Book Burning to Canon. Uh, if you're interested in that, you can find it by Googling, uh, Googling the, um, the, the Touchstone webpage. Uh, and it's, it's easy. It's pretty easy to find. I've always, I've always had uneasy feelings about book burning, although I have on occasion burned some books. Okay. No, Joseph, not those. <laughs> uh, the, the context here is double worship. Okay. The people are bringing their books of sorcery. To have them burned. I have done that on several occasions. When, a, when somebody has come to the Lord under my tutelage, uh, 
some of the people have come to the Lord under my tutelage. One of the first things I did was do a ser- series of exorcisms. Wouldn't even wouldn't even let them wouldn't even let them attend an inquirer's class until they'd done some exorcisms. You know, I would say, you know, you're in really bad shape. Uh, so we did some exorcism, and then they would come and they bring me their books. I had stacks of books uh, on uh, on devil worship. I had some misgivings about burning these books. Okay. Why? Because I worked for years in a library. <laughs> and sometimes, even when I've read this thing in Acts, I'll, we would know so much more about antiquity if we'd had these books that these Ephesians burned. But, of course, what was, what was at stake here was not the books. What was at stake was their souls. You know, they want to burn their books rather than their, than their souls fall into, um, you know, thrown in the out, external darkness where there's weeping and the dent, damaging of dentures. They don't want that. You know, uh, 50,000 pieces of silver. The Apostle Paul, who had labored at Ephesus for three years, stressed the importance of doctrinal orthodoxy to all who ministered and taught there. Uh, let me... I've got a lot of papers here. You have that text. We well, do have that text. Acts 20, starting at verse <laughs> 7. Okay. Uh, from Miletus, this is when Paul's on his last trip, right? He's coming back to to uh, to the Holy Land, where he will be um, condemned and sent to Rome. Um, but this is his last of his missionary trips. He, they stop at Miletus. Remember, he lost a week because from the trip from uh, Samothrace over to uh, over to Troas. The water coming through the Dardanelles was holding the ship back. Okay. So he, he, he gets there late, and he loses a week because he wants to stay at Troas for a week. So he loses a week. So when he comes down the coast of, of Asia Minor and, and, and on over to the Holy Land, he doesn't, he doesn't go in, into Ephesus because it would take too long to go in at Ephesus. Okay. So he, has, he sends for the elders of the church to come see him at the coast of Miletus. Okay. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Therefore take heed to yourselves, he says to them, and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now notice this warning that Paul gives to the church of Ephesus. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everybody, everyone, day and night with tears. Let me just point out one little, one little detail there. How long was he at Ephesus? Three years. Okay. In the Acts of the Apostles, he spends three months and then spends two years. What does that come to? 20 to 27 months, doesn't it? Okay. How are you going to account for that remaining nine, nine, uh, nine months? I published something on this many years ago. Uh, my, my argument was he was thrown in prison for nine months. And then, in fact, that, and from there, I, I, I believe that he wrote the Epistle of the Philippians. But we have a discrepancy here within the, within, the, 
within the book of Acts itself. There's a discrepancy. Okay. Uh, but I think it, he's simply not counting the time he was in, he was in prison. We know that he had a hard time in prison because in Ephesus, because he speaks about his, his fighting with wild beasts when he was at Ephesus. You get that in, in Second Corinthians. Um, then Paul sends Timothy to pastor at Ephesus. Okay. And here's what Paul writes to Timothy at Ephesus. Okay. Uh, you have that, don't you, at the bottom of your page? Yes, you do. Okay. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may change, pardon me, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Notice he keeps emphasizing doctrine. From which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, affirming neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Later, I think that's the most I could put on that one page. But I've got uh, lots of other texts as well, but I won't read you all of them. Um, where am I? Oh, and, uh, hang on a second. Let me, let, me, let me find the other page of my notes. I've, I've removed a page prior Yes, First Timothy 1, 18 to 20. You don't have this in front of you, but it's an important text about the church of Ephesus. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage a good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. By the way, for those of you who like to argue with evangelicals, there's a good argument against once saved, always saved. People making a shipwreck of the faith, just in case. Jerry, you're not into that, I don't think. Of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan that they might not, that they may learn not to blaspheme. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 3. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and abstinence from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and, t and know the truth. Now, who are these people? Who are these people? Let's have a look a little further on the, on your top text there. Let's have a look at this. Um, nevertheless, I have this against you. Verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Now, what's the fact really uh, strange, unexpected about that 
is when St. Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians, he did not make one complaint about false doctrine at Ephesus. There was no complaint about false doctrine at Ephesus. None. And yet here, how much later? Not all that much later. It can't be precise, but not all much later. He says, you've lost your first love. Remember from where you've fallen. Repent and do works. Do the first works. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But he says, this you have, that you hate the the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So when we read about the Nicolaitans in church, you should treat them exactly as the way you treat... Ooh, goodness. Ooh, that, that hurt. That hurt all the way over here. Okay. Uh, the Nicolaitans. Let me say something about the Nicolaitans. I'm not sure I can treat this as an independent text. Okay. I would like to, but it appears to me that I can't treat it as independent of this text simply because this text is quoted. What I'm going to read you now is from a book by Irenaeus of Lyon. Now, Irenaeus of Lyon was himself an Asian, and his church received one of the seven letters. He was from the church of Smyrna, and his church received one of the seven letters. He's writing sometime around 180. He is a disciple of Polycarp of Smyrna, and he was sent to southern Gaul to Lugdunum, okay, Lyon, he was sent down there, as the parish priest. He eventually succeeds as bishop. And then, much later in life, he's writing this treatise against the heresies. And the text I'm going to read you is from book one of the books of the, of the heretics, uh, uh, against the heresies. He's talking about the Nicolaitans. I would feel very shaky about this text, I have to tell you, if it weren't, weren't from the pen of St. Irenaeus. I would feel very shaky about this text. Here's his, here's his explanation. Because I, The reason I feel shaky about it is because Irenaeus was from there. He represents the tradition there. And as improbable as all this seems to me, he, he does say it. The Nicolaitans, he says... Apparently, the Nicolaitans still exist in the year 180. The Nicolaitans are the followers of that Nicholas who was one of the seven first ordained to the diaconate by the apostles. That, that sort of jars you back, doesn't it? The one of those seven with, with Philip and Stephen, okay. the one of them, the Nicholas, turns out bad. You, don't, you, don't, you would never guess that from the New Testament by itself. This is what Irenaeus says. Uh, I'm sorry? Yeah, one of the twelve as well. Yeah. Uh, good point. <laughs> what is it about these people? They live unrestrained, they live lives of unrestrained indulgence. The character of these men is very plainly pointed out in the Revelation of John. So he quotes the book of Revelation. When they are represented as teaching that is a matter of indifference to practice adultery, to eat things sacrificed to idols, 
Wherefore the word has also spoken of them thus. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I read you that text. I, I, I won't swear by the text, but it is Irenaeus. And he does believe that this, these Nicolaitans were disciples of this Nicholas. Andrew? When's he writing this? About 180. About 180. He's writing this in southern Gaul. A little, a little um, community down around a place called Lyon, which by the year 200 had converted the whole of the south of France. Mm-hmm. The south of Gaul, rather. Okay. Um, okay, let me come back to where I was. Uh, I'm not going to read you any more from Timothy, but for those of you taking notes, I refer you to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, and chapter 20. I will read chapter 20, because it's um, it's the, the big exhortation, a famous exhortation to Timothy. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings, in contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed according to the faith, or concerning the faith. That which falsely called knowledge, the word is gnosis, gnosis, falsely called knowledge. Uh, It does, oh, they've already finished classes already. Oh, goodness. Okay. That means I can't go much. Can't go much longer then. They're going to the bathroom. Oh, the, oh, the class isn't open. Oh, okay. Because oh. I thought I had more time than that. Okay. okay. Oh. The uh, let's say knowledge false false degree. Notice there the the the, the characteristics. Of, of this falsely called knowledge in the New Testament. Notice the characteristics. It's people who have an ex- extreme dualism, extreme dualism, matter and spirit. You, already, you can already discern that in the New Testament. Uh, the, uh, the description, for example, we... Uh, where am I getting this description? No, I, I, I'm, it's another page, another page of paper. Ignatius to the Ephesians. Now, this is much earlier. Ignatius to the Ephesians, um, written apparently around the year 107. I have heard of some who passed on from this to you, having false doctrine, that you did not allow to sow among you, but stopped your ears, that you might not receive those things which were sown by them. Okay. Then he goes on to quote the bishop of Ephesus. And guess what the bishop's name is? You perhaps know already the bishop's name. Onesimus. Does that ring any bells? The useful guy. The useful guy, Onesimus. Okay. Pardon me. Well, he's not, not the, the slave, that, uh, the former slave. That's exactly who he appears to be. Okay, is the former slave over at Colossae? That's exactly who he appears to be. Okay, we can't swear by it, but the early testimony is it was this former slave who became the bishop of Ephesus 
to succeed Timothy, okay. which is very interesting. In which case, he's still the bishop there in 107. Okay. You see how these, the, these early fathers tie in with the New Testament uh, so well. Um, let me continue reading the text with you, though. Okay. Um, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Uh, what is the fault? What is the problem at Ephesus? Would you think just what we've read here in the text? What is the chief problem? Douglas. It seems like a, uh, a transition from the love of Christ to uh, an overbearing legalism, perhaps. Like too much emphasis on the law and the rules rather than the love of Christ. That is exactly what I think the problem is. And you picked that up yourself. Good. That's exactly the problem. <laughs> okay. That's exactly what the problem is. Uh, I mean, as far as I can see, he says you've, you've, you've preserved the faith. You have no, you have no truck with heresy. False doctrine doesn't have a chance to take hold of, among you. Okay. Any, any doubtful books are burned. Constant emphasis on purity of doctrine. Okay. You get this from Paul, and apparently it worked. Okay. Because when Paul writes the letter to the Ephesians, he can't complain about any heresies going on there. At the same time, he's writing to Timothy, who's taking over at Ephesus, he says, you need to clean up this and clean up that. Okay. But, uh, you know, you, you find congregations like this, I guess, where everything is done according to Hoyle. <laughs> All I know about Hoyle is it rhymes with oil. But everything is done correctly but they've lost their first agape. And I, I think myself, I think that, it's, that it does appear to be the problem at Ephesus for John, is that they've, they've kept the faith, but they've lost the love. Uh, and that's the way he describes it. You've lost your first agape. Uh, any other things I need to mention on this? I got my, I'm going around in different places in my notes. Oh, yes. Let me come back to Ignatius to the Ephesians. I skipped a section here. It is manifest, therefore, that you should look upon the bishop even as we should look upon the Lord himself. And indeed, now he quotes the bishop, Onesimus himself greatly commends your good order in God, that you live according to the truth, and that no sect has any dwelling place among you. Nor indeed do you hearken to anyone rather than to Jesus Christ speaking in truth. Uh, hang on now the church was obliged to deal with false, false apostles okay, concerning which Paul had given them warning. Okay. But the problem at Ephesus it was not one of orthodoxy but a lack of charity. They had forgotten their first agape. At one time, they had known fervent love. That's very clear, for example, in chapter 20 of, of uh, the book of the Acts of the Apostles. 
that they loved one another. They grew in love. But now it had grown cold. John's words to them here stand forever as a warning to those whose zeal for doctrinal purity obscures their minds from the need of charity. Uh, I'm not at all convinced that this problem is behind us. <laughs> not a bit. Uh, in fact, it appears to me that the manifest lack of charity that one sees in Orthodox bog sites, for example, where clearly people hate one another. It's as, as clear as day. They absolutely hate one another. And they're arguing over such things as what, when you actually keep the 4th of July, old calendar or new calendar. <laughs> You're joking? Are you joking? I am joking. <laughs> they, they're not worried about when you keep the 4th of July. They're actually caring, caring, about, caring about when you keep almost all the other days in the year, particularly Christmas. When, when, when Christmas should be observed. And, and, and it seems to me there's a great rupture of charity there. Uh, we're doing it right, you're doing it wrong. Um, I do believe that that should come under the discipline of the church and that we should try to celebrate Christmas on the same day. Okay? But when you remember that the church in the East was not celebrating Christmas until the 4th century anyway, it can't be one of those things that we should be having a fight about. I think I saw a hand there, didn't I? Yes, yes, sir. I just recently I reminded me of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's letter to the Alexander Solzhenitsyn's letter to the local council. It just it just came out of the Soviet Union, and it talks about the one mistake that broker is doing is that it's identifying himself with a Catholic church, which is sinless, purest, perfect, and also bodiless. And he reminded them that he had just written a letter and criticizing things they, they were to be criticized under the patriarchate in Moscow. But he said, you realize this is the situation they find themselves. And now, I wrote this letter while I was in the Soviet Union, and now that I've come out of the Soviet Union and free, I have lost all uh, right to write such a letter again. Because so he's, he's not there anymore. Uh, Joseph, you're a big Solzhenitsyn man. Is that... Yeah, that's right. He did write a letter to a, you know, patriarch demon. Uh, if I remember rightly, it's been a long time, basically critiquing or criticizing too much compromise with the regime. And uh, the one from Rokhbar, I was aware of it, but I don't remember reading it. That's a while ago. Okay. Uh, the children do seem to be out now. I see them running all over the place, so I probably should probably need to break. Um, oh, yes, any, any other questions? Let me try that first. Bonnie. I have a really good question, I think. Um, you mentioned that there was a sermon, um, and you talked about it here with charity, but you mentioned um, the Orthodox Church, you know, falling into these, or portions of it falling into these areas of, let's just call it compromise. Um, so how is that achieved, the air, this, this charity within the Orthodox Church, when you have specifically leaders in the church who are teaching seriously wrong doctrine. They've so gone away from just basic yeah. tradition. How is that then expressed? Because when you express, well, gee whiz, you know, 
The, uh, and there's no doubt that that uh, apologetics in, in the church, even when it's necessary, is a pretty pretty messy business. A pretty messy business. Um, and I'm not sure I, I'm not sure exactly how, and I can't hold up my own example. I recently got into a bit, a, quite a tiff on one of the. Uh, one of the blog sites sponsored by Ancient Faith Radio by this this guy okay. um, I don't want to be taking names in vain but he was criticizing the writer the, the writer is a fairly the fellow who runs the blog is a fairly young fellow I don't think he's much over 40 uh, he, and he was, he's a Hebrew scholar and I discovered later he's also a master in Chinese I wasn't aware of that you know. But he was writing about the, the Hebrew text of the Bible, the preservation of the Hebrew text of the Bible. But immediately you've got Orthodox clergy rising up to condemn him because they keep insisting on the primacy of the, of the Septuagint. Uh, and what I wrote in, I would, will not retract. I said, this is, this is anti-Semitic. I'm sorry, this is simply anti-Semitic. Do not quote the fathers of the church on the Hebrew text. Do not quote John Chrysostom on the Hebrew text. I know John Chrysostom talks about the Hebrew text, but he could not read Hebrew. Uh, when, he, when Chrysostom refers to the Hebrew text, he's referring to Aquila, Asimachus, and, and Theodosian. Those are, he, those are translations from the Hebrew, but those are anti-Christian texts. But you can't use quotations from Chrysostom to fight against the, uh, the Masoretic text because there is no evidence, zero evidence, that the Jews ever changed one thing in the Hebrew text after at least, after about the year 100. Did they ever change anything at all? Um, but uh, I, uh, I expressed myself fairly forcefully in this matter and, and gave some offense. I don't take it back, however. I don't take it back. Uh, I corresponded with one of the priests privately, and uh, I think we're settled with him. I think I think we've got it settled, but uh, what it takes, Bonnie, I don't have, and I think that's high sanctity. I think it, I think it takes it takes it takes a saint, and when I read someone like Basil, there's a saint, but I look at how often Basil lost his temper. It appear it appears in the in the letters of Basil, um, when you're dealing with something like. Uh, Arianism, it's very, very difficult to remain calm. Is it, it possible, too, just to ask a follow-up question, is it possible, too, that we don't understand what charity is? That we take our definition of charity? I think that's perhaps, that, 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 that actually could be very close to the truth, really, I think. Uh, but charity becomes a form of niceness. Certainly, I can't think there are very many priests who would get away with writing a letter like Second Corinthians or Galatians, I can't think of many, many priests who could get away with it. Of course, I can't think of very many priests who measure up to Saint Paul either. Glory to the Father, through the Son, and the Holy Spirit now and ever, the God who is, who was, and is to come at the end of time. Amen.